right. Hi, everyone. This is Anthony Diaz with the Pop Health Show, and this show is for anyone that has a super strong passion between the intersection of emerging technologies, impact, and health. And sometimes we don't talk about all three of those topics, but it is a fascinating time in history where a lot of these topics are are changing rapidly, and the confounding and, and collision of these topics is introducing some really great innovations. And I'm not going to steal our thunder, but uh, to that point, Aaron Murphy is here on the show today. I'm really enthused and excited to have Aaron on the show. And Erin is the Chief Growth Officer at Topple, and I'm sure she's going to tell us what Topple's about. What's more important is about her origin story, where things are at, and she's got a really interesting background, and she's working on some fascinating things. Erin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Anthony, for having me. Really appreciate it. Excited to kind of dig into stuff for your listeners. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it's great to have you on. I really appreciate uh, the time. Teleport us back. Take us back to where things started. So yeah, my journey to web, into Web3 started, hard to believe, but coming up on three years ago. Um, but I guess I can go back a little bit before that. Um, I My background was primarily spent in the public sector before finding Web3. I you know, studied public health, actually, so that, that works out nicely here for, for your listeners. But I studied public health in undergrad and... Um, and journalism. So like really not thinking that I would end up going into tech one day, um, which is the story actually of a lot of people in Web3, which I think is why I really love the industry so much. But after university, I uh, actually did a Fulbright scholarship in Moldova, which is a small country in Eastern Europe. I had studied Russian in undergrad and wanted to kind of pursue my mastery of the language and really was hoping for and working toward a career in uh, international, you know, sustainable development, economic development, um, and felt that Fulbright was a really good way to sort of kick that off as it was. So I was in Moldova. um, And then after that, went to Nepal, I worked mostly as an independent contractor there, primarily in microfinance initiatives or micro enterprise development initiatives. And, um, all, but really a lot of my projects kind of ran the gamut from like peace building to, um, you know, STI prevention. It just kind of depended on the, the contract that I was working and the organization that I was working for. And those kind of range from different UN agencies to like really small NGOs, right? So it, it kind of ran the gamut there. Um, then I uh, went back to Eastern Europe and uh, was working in, uh, actually covering the, as a journalist, working for like a media development organization. We worked in the, all the former kind of Soviet space or Eastern Bloc space covering the, you know, what was essentially the transition still from, um, from communism to capitalism or to, you know, free markets and the challenges that kind of came with that. Um, and that was, you know, really interesting exposure to a different type of NGO work. Um, and then eventually my career just kind of took me back to Asia, back to, so I really like kind of worked across a range of topics, primarily in the, um, either in the humanitarian aid space or in the, you know, economic development space in Eastern Europe and in South Asia. Mm. Um, And I would say that my kind of aha moment, so to speak, of when I realized that, you know, this NGO scene really wasn't the way to achieve change and the way 
that I think I felt passionate about was, I'm not sure if you remember the earthquakes in 2015 in Nepal, but they were devastating series of, you know, 7.8, 7.9 scale earthquakes in a country with very little infrastructure. Um, At the time I was working for an Indian NGO um, running their Nepal operations. And I just really felt like it brought out the worst, unfortunately, in the humanitarian aid sector. Um, and really started to see just, you know, billions of dollars were pouring into Nepal. And, you know, I was just kind of wondering, like, where's all this money going? And Mm -hmm. how is it being accounted for? Um, I felt like, you know, we weren't moving fast enough, that there we weren't reaching enough people. It wasn't being distributed equitably. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of became interested in starting my own own initiative that even though I knew it would be small, I, I could, you know, I wanted to sort of see the impact that that I could have. Um, So I started a a fair trade fashion company, actually. So I was manufacturing primarily in Nepal, a bit in India, and then retailing in the US. But because I had spent, you know, pretty much my whole career in nonprofits, I felt, you know, I I didn't really know how to scale a business. Um, I wanted to not be a hobbyist. I wanted to kind of take it to the next level. Uh, So that's when I applied to, to business school. So mm-hmm. I went to, um, I, I, you know, I went to do my, do my MBA, and as you know, Murphy's Law would have it, my MBA, you know, the second year was spent primarily all during COVID, which turns mm-hmm. out had sort of paralyzing implications for my supply chain. You know, I had inventory just kind of sitting on runways in South Asia, where there, you know, were really long lockdowns. Um, but I didn't want to stop working on my on my startup. I was, you know, in this atmosphere where I could be meeting with investors, where I could be meeting with, you know, even my fellow classmates who maybe had started businesses or were interested in impact or sustainability. So I didn't want to just kind of abandon it. And one of the things that I decided to focus on was, is there sort of a like an, a unique tech angle that I can work into my brand? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was kind of considering two. I guess emerging technologies at the, you know and this was about four I guess three years ago one of which was um, augmented reality so could I provide this experience for my for you know my customers where they could kind of transport themselves to the places in Nepal and India where my products were being made where they could you know see and sort of interact with the women who um, who were working in the the co-ops that I was working with and sort of like better understand the ethos of the brand and the other was blockchain Uh, I was really interested in blockchain kind of from a couple years before that and I wouldn't say as much in cryptocurrency but in the sort of potential that blockchain as a technology offered kind Mm -hmm. of as the real world economy and so I kind of started digging into you know blockchain and traceability and you know it definitely is a really strong use case, you see examples from, you know, IBM or Walmart or sort of other like enterprise level implementations. And I I literally Googled like ESG or sustainability blockchain, something like that, and Topple came up. And Mm -hmm. I had a pitch competition coming up and I emailed them and I was like, hey guys, like I think what you're doing is amazing. I really need you to teach me how to talk about blockchain with investors. And, you know, they jumped on like a two hour call and I just really sort of 
fell in love with the mission and the people and you know I sort of told myself that if the timing wasn't right with my startup you know this would be a really awesome second you know second option you know like do I do I join this team and they I decided to do a fellowship with them in my final semester and I just you know continued to kind of fall in love with the mission and I felt like the timing was sort of impeccable so I joined the team full-time um, in 2021 in the spring and since then I've kind of I've worked in kind of two capacities um, when I first joined the team I was a product manager and worked mostly on sort of product growth and that was for our traceability product and then about a year and a half ago I moved on to the executive team uh, heading up our growth team so I work primarily now with growing the developer ecosystem, growing relationships with partners, business development, basically anything that grows the company, I'm working on it. Mm-hmm. I love it. I love it. Well, Aaron, um, I heard a lot of a lot of different things, but the common thread there is, is you know, there's tremendous opportunity that you've always seen for humanitarian efforts, for doing greater good, for doing things outside of ourselves. Um, it seems like you've always identified, you know, significant levels of probably abundance, but yet you have these also these areas of like suffering, tremendous opportunity. It, it led you into your own entrepreneurial efforts and and, uh, and then you you, you, um, you decided to kind of parlay that at, at, into Topple. Um, and so, yeah, it is a pretty fascinating time, right? These notions of currency are changing. There's opportunities to unlock value. You have humanitarian efforts that can now, you know, there's this element of, of sort of tokenizing and assetizing that's happening. Blockchains can unlock that value. But yeah, this is really exciting. Tell me a little bit about you know, what you're passionate about now, what you're working on, um, maybe, you know, how that part lays into what Topple's doing, if you'd like to speak about that. But yeah, just love to hear more about the present and what your, how, you, how your previous passions are converging into what you're focused on now. Yeah, I think there's sort of two major themes um, that I am working toward sort of every day, both in like my own kind of you know, interests and, you know, things that I kind of do on the side to help other projects. And then obviously what I'm doing at Topple and they're all sort of related. Um, The first is this idea of financial inclusion. And I think this idea gets, you know, talked about a lot, especially in, you know, by fintech and crypto companies. And Mm -hmm. I want to just sort of call out and acknowledge that we have a very, very long way to go on financial inclusion, right? And just, you know, I'm sure some of your listeners are aware, but the definition that I sort of use for that is really, you know, what is the access to capital or to financial services that people in a given market have? And I think it's really especially important to look at how that breaks down because, you know, sometimes we look at numbers of crypto adoption and it's really promising. We see countries like Nigeria or Vietnam or Turkey, right, where um, where the numbers are seemingly really high. But I would really caution us and, you know, advocate that we interrogate those numbers because just like any form of wealth, we want to know how that's distributed, right? Um, who is it that owns all this crypto in these markets? And uh, is it, you know, a way of holding value? Is it actually being used for you know, currency purposes or for payments. So I think there's a lot of work we as an industry kind of need to do to better understand that. But in general, I think that, you know, financial inclusion is something I'm really passionate about because for a lot of my career, I worked on, I guess, the the sort of byproducts of a lack of financial inclusion, which can be anything from, you know, anything that we can think of that kind of can spring from poverty, be that, um, 
conflict or, you know, resource conflict or, you know, other sort of social injustices that we see, you know, the marginalization of minorities or, um, you know, especially women's issues in so many societies, even in our own, women don't have the same access to capital, right? So that's, that's like a theme that I think is really important to me. And it's something that's really important to topple. Um, the second would be this idea that we need to put a number or a value on impact. Mm-hmm. And personally, I look at, and what I mean by that is that what we need to sort of understand and capture the value of impact initiatives. Because right now, I, I would argue that we're not really doing that. I think we have some use cases or uh, examples. If you think about companies like Patagonia, right, where, you know, they're this, they have this incredible brand equity because they do right by their suppliers because they have this mission because they give so much back but these a lot of these we could argue are sort of like one-offs and we want to see what I would like to see is you know across industries uh, an effort to measure their impact beyond and also just beyond carbon so personally I look at carbon markets and I get really excited because ultimately you know what we could argue the Kyoto Protocol did was you know it assembled people who global decision makers who ultimately came to the decision that there is a monetary value or a price that we have to put on this negative externality. Um, But what, you know, a lot of the founders of Topple believed, what I believe, and I think what a lot of the sort of, if you want to say the regenerative finance space believes, is that there are there are other types of impact, other types of externalities that are not valued yet with a monetary value. So, you know, what if my company employs 40% women? Can that be turned into an impact asset that's tradable? Um, yeah. Generate, you know, revenue, an ancillary revenue stream for my organization. Or even if we think beyond um, just sort of social impact that could be rewarded, be that, you know, scholarship programs or, you know, employment numbers, fair wage practices, things like that. I think there's also, there's other environmental benefits that are not necessarily tradable right now. So for example, I work, you know, with an organization that's tokenizing the um, biomass restoration. They work primarily with the um, American or the Mesoamerican reef. So um, they're restoring this biomass to the reef. Um, This is something that, you know, a lot of, for example, fisheries or uh, cruise lines might want to buy those tokens because it's very it's it's sort of directly tied to their business externality, right. Right? right? So I think creating a more robust market for these impact assets is is kind of critical to um, to giving businesses a way to actually give give back or invest in my in my case I would say it's I believe that it's really an investment in things that are actually more pertinent to their business operations than maybe just taking you know arguably the easier route of buying carbon credits yeah yeah you know it's interesting Aaron. yeah I, I had someone on the show last week that uh he was talking he was talking about there's almost like a hundred something you know credits in the space you know in environmental there's like plastic credits I didn't even know there's a read that's pretty fascinating to hear yeah. yeah for the company that's trying to improve their scores or impact you know that's that's two and one easy to do right it's like they identify the opportunity then they buy the tokens and then it should should register right that there's right uh, brings me to a question you know we have these esg scores and obviously you and i know there's there's it's very political right some are like oh man needs to change 
oh, it's perfect as is, but then sometimes you have these other companies that are out there and they're like ESG scores are high or, or the opposite, they're very low, but they're doing, they're making such a big impact. So how are the scores made? How are they influenced and things like that? I think we both could agree that, you know, the scores probably will always need to evolve and change. Are they evolving and changing for the better faster than what they need to go? Who makes these scores up? Things like that. But what's, what's your take on some of these credits outside of carbon and climate credits and how that relates to ESG? Do you think that ESG is going to be that mechanism that holds it or is there this other standard? And maybe you can, maybe you can tell us a little bit how Topple maybe plays a role in that, in that uh, movement, if anything. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think we have a somewhat controversial take on ESG, um, which is that, you know, in a lot of ways, I sort of wonder, is ESG just like a reincarnation of CSR, you know, or we found a new acronym, we kind of gave it a new scaffolding and um, has more economic pull. At the end of the day, you know, how are we actually evaluating it? Um, So I think there's that piece. I think there's the other piece that kind of goes to what I was discussing earlier about value creation. Yeah. So right now, I think the problem with a lot of ESG efforts is that we see like one-off, basically they're not income generating or they're not revenue generating or they're they're not sort of financially or economically sustainable. So every time a company sort of wants to, you know, participate in a new ESG effort, if that's, you know, sequestering carbon in some hectares of the rainforest or, you know, sending girls to school, whatever that is, they have to sort of invest new capital. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think until, you know, these efforts can become self-sustaining, we are really not getting to sort of the heart of the matter, which is going back to what I was saying earlier, you know, this idea of positive sum economics that people right. who are having, who are, you know, investing in positive externalities should be financially rewarded for that. Right. But I do think what, you know, this is where I'm sort of bullish on the use of blockchain. And I'm, I'm sure someone from AI or from, you know, another emerging tech would say the same thing about the role that their tech or, you know, their space can have in ESG reporting. But ultimately, I think the we're not going to converge on a singular set of standards for ESG, right? right. As long as we have a super robust market, essentially, I think it was like almost a trillion dollars or something last year. Yeah. Um, in and, you know, that could be sort of convoluted with other sort of impact finance. So don't quote me on that. But it was some really exorbitant number that's spent on ESG efforts and reporting. And um, But, you know, 97% of ESG or people who work in ESG, so think of like sustainability officers or impact officers or um, people on those teams, data scientists, et cetera, um, complain or have this pain point of, you know, that they they feel like they can't really prove what they're doing. And right. so I think that that, you know, does present a really unique opportunity for for blockchain. I think ultimately, if we're not going to converge on one set of global standards for, you know, this is how we define the environmental, the social and the governance aspects of ESG, then a really sort of great alternative is, okay, use whatever standard you want, but figure out a way to implement a technology that improves the confidence or trust in your data, right? So if you're telling me that you've sequestered this much data or you've bought these carbon credits, or sorry, you've sequestered this much carbon or you've bought these carbon credits or you've invested in 
um, you know, regenerative agriculture or, you know, right. whatever that sort of impact or ESG initiative is, will prove it to me as a stakeholder, be that be right. a shareholder, a board member or a customer, right? right? And let me right. just, if I believe right. that's value creating, right? right? And so if I can see that, okay, this company has decided to really clean up its act with its supply chain and they're committing yeah. to sort of public visibility of where things are sourced from. Or, you know, this company has decided to invest in renewables and they're right. you know, putting all of this data on chain. And, you know, the, I don't know if, how familiar your, your listeners are with blockchain, but I would say with this use case, there are two sort of really important fundamental characteristics of blockchain that matter. The first is that, um, you know, blockchain is, is essentially time-stamped, right? So we know when an event happened. Um, and the second is that that data is immutable. So unlike the centralized databases that are often used to house this kind of data, which can be manipulated, blockchains cannot, right? That data is put on chain and it's there forever. It can be mm -hmm. appended, but it can't be edited, right? right? So I think those are really valuable sort of innate characteristics of the technology that render it important for ESG reporting and tracking. But, you know, I think there's, there's a general kind of fear one because i think the technology is really difficult for some people to understand which is totally fair there's also this a lot of kind of myths and misconceptions that need to be you know myth busted which you know block everything if i put it on chain it's all public that's not true there are a lot of ways to encrypt data to make proofs around the data to only share with relevant parties right and i think the most important message that i always try to communicate to people who are interested in sort of taking this first step is that's that's the most important part is just committing to some level of transparency right and it, it doesn't have to be everything all at once right it's just a show of good faith it's a you know do it as a pilot um do it with only a, like a certain set of data until you're comfortable with it but i think people underestimate the the value that we'll have with stakeholders right, right. Taking that right. First step. and you know frankly transparency is not a two-way street, right? We are going down this road toward people demanding more transparency. And I don't think in like 10 years or five years, someone's going to be like, you know what, let's be less transparent. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this yeah. is happening. So just get out in front of it. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. It is it's so much like a societal shift. And I, I like the way you put it. It's, it's like you have these ESG scores and everything, but it's really the variables and putting truth around those variables and putting those out in the open because at the end of the day, impacts, you know, the numbers don't lie, but the algorithm could change the overall formula. We may be off in our calculations on how much impact Absolutely. we need to increase plastics. And that's probably going to change. We're going to find out some new value. You know, we, we dig into the Earth's crust and we find this immense amount of value. And then that probably might diminish the needs for other impact areas or something like that. So discovery. And so at least along the way, you have those trust factors, you have the ledger, and then you can kind of start to always do the math backwards. Right. But if everything's just boiled right. into one score, it's almost like trying to like pick a team and do money ball on picking a team when all you have to go for go by is the scores from championship games from just like every other year, right? You can't really choose right, a team. Yeah. You need to know the player stats, you need to know the, the variables at a micro level to be able to build back up, right? So it's, it's yeah. fascinating. Yeah, and I think that that's a really good point that, you know, your friend raised about all these um, sort of standards boards or creditization organizations. I would actually, actually argue that I think that's a good thing. I think the centralization of these <clears throat> models is problematic. I mean, we've seen that in carbon markets, you know, mm -hmm. in year, if anyone's familiar with that sort of guardian expose, um, that there, this 
centralization of an authority to make credits um, is is problematic. And so yeah. we work with some kind of smaller organizations who are really focused on, you know, one particular the way that one particular soil type or forest type can sequester carbon. And mm-hmm. I, if I'm on sort of like an ESG team, I think I would really value that expertise over a sort of more generalized model that um, may or may not be as accurate, right? So I think the plurality is actually really important. Um, it doesn't have to be a negative, but the way we can sort of bring uniformity is is through the way that we present the data, yeah, collect the data. Mm-hmm. Nice, nice. Now I, I love the way you put it, Erin. This is this is super exciting. I know you, you touched a little bit too on on kind of where we're going, and yeah, this whole concept of transparency. We're not going to, as a society, say, okay, let's go back a little bit to the dark ages, right? Things are moving pretty fast. But tell me a little bit about your. I guess one of our kind of my last questions I always like to to do on these shows and these episodes is talk about the future. Tell me a little bit about where where you see the future in this space going. How you like to play a role? Like what's what's going to incite excite you? keep you engaged in this space? What would you like to see happen? I just love to understand your vision of the the future. Yeah, well, there's, you know, there's, there's so much going on in this industry and it moves so fast that I'm sure if you asked any, any other person in Web3, they would probably give you different answers, but I'll tell you the things that I'm really excited about. Um, I think firstly, I'm, I'm very, I'm very excited about the sort of specific avenues that I see people working on when it comes to financial inclusion. So when I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, there's a lot of dApps and projects working on this idea of an alternative credit score, which I think is an incredibly sort of u- utility-driven way to think about how cryptocurrency or how blockchain can actually make a difference. Um, mm-hmm. If we know that, you know, more than a billion people on this planet don't have access to banks, um, and then we also need to sort of layer in the complexity that a lot of people might have access, but they don't trust banks. That's just the reality in a lot of markets where you have high inflation or you have just a general lack of institutional trust. That having this sort of alternative scorecard, if you don't have a way to establish credit, but maybe you know you can attest to your skills that you have achieved, or to if you're a farmer, you know I have produced every year for the last, you know, six years, this amount of coffee, it's with this quality grade, you know, that has earned me this much income. Um, and that can act as sort of an alternative credit score. And I think we, we've sort of seen a couple projects working on this and now we're really trying to test how do microfinance institutions or alternative finance institutions respond to this data? Um, mm-hmm. I'm sort of really excited about is more how do regular people respond to this data, right? So <laughs> I've sort of always very pathologically, optimistically believed that if people will buy like a random NFT, then would they not also buy an asset that they know, um, you know, not only will be will impact another person di- directly, but that also can act as an investment for them. Right. Um, if you know, I personally would love for my sort of future state to be just investing in, you know, different regenerative farming organizations all around the world. And because you're removing the friction of access to capital or access to really, really expensive capital, which is the reality for most people on the planet, that they're they're looking at 50 to 100 percent interest rates. If you can right. remove those like incredible barriers um, and and really we're not even talking about, you know, huge amounts of money. We're talking about, you know, five thousand 
dollars that can have a massive impact on the co-op of farmers, right? Right. So I think the the next sort of stage that I'm really excited about is to see how do how do retail investors and you know kind of ordinary people, so to speak, respond mm-hmm. to these these opportunities to invest or to participate in these initiatives. And then I think the other piece is the, and what Topple's really focused on is also the tokenization of, you know, real world assets. So we started in supply chains, we've done a bit in commodities, we want to do more in that space. Um, But, you know, since so many people on the planet are, their wealth or their, um, their sort of position is determined not by, you know, dollars in the bank, but by other assets, cows, livestock, water access. Uh, you know, plot of plots of land given out through the family, whatever that may be. Yeah, vehicles, think, warehouses, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I think those are really, that's how, if we can tokenize those and those can be, you know, used as collateral or used as um, something that brings utility to those, to those people, then we're actually kind of coming out above some of, you know, rising above some of the barriers that we currently see to, to crypto adoption in some markets. So I think mm-hmm. that's something that I think is also really exciting. I love it. I love it. Aaron, it's it's powerful work you're doing and it's it's fascinating to hear and see your background and your passions for humanitarian humanitarian efforts, right? That ethos and you know, seeing this vision of where currency was, where it's going, where assets are going. And it is an exciting time to be alive. It's it's fascinating. It seems like most amount of change in the concept of assets and, and this space is going to occur. It's happening now, right? But it's definitely yeah. like rapidly happening between now and twenty thirty. Um, and so, um, Aaron, this was great. I know we went a, a little bit over our typical. Yeah, sorry uh, about that. <laughs> no, this was great. You know, honestly, I'd love to have you back. I know Topple's uh, evolving a little bit, and I just love to have you come back on the show and hear more because it, it is an evolving space, and there's there's not as many people you you know you would think in this space that's kind of playing this intersection of the enablement of this to 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 occur. So it's fascinating to hear about your work. So I'd love to have you back on. My uh, very last question for you would be: if our listeners want to get a hold of you, what would be a good way to do so? Yeah, so I would say the best way, so if you want to learn more about Topple and what we're doing and how we think about things and interact with our core team would be to jump in our Discord. Um, you can also reach me there in Discord. If you're not comfortable with Discord, um, you can always reach out on LinkedIn or Twitter. So I can you know, give those links to you, Anthony, so that you can share sure. those with listeners, but absolutely. And I would say that's a sort of general thing in the in the web3 space is that if there's a project that you like or a person that you find that you're you know interested in talking to most of us are you know just really excited to jump on a call with someone so don't be shy absolutely absolutely well aaron thank you so much this was great uh to, and uh really uh exciting to hear about what you're working on and where you've been and, and thanks for having me yeah absolutely and uh to our listeners out there this is the pop Hell show this shows for anyone that has a super strong passion uh between the intersection of emerging technologies and impacts thanks so much aaron this was great thank you so much For sure. All right.